0: Well, let's jump back in to our study of First and Second Samuel as you're reading through these sections as part of our Bible 2020 reading plan. And, uh, do hope that this is a valuable resource to you as you're worshiping at home. I uh, wanna invite you to engage with this video. Uh, stop and pause it certain sections if you need to wrestle through some things ask some questions have your bible open and follow along so uh, if you have your bible go ahead and turn to the section of first samuel we've been looking at these uh, two sections together first and second samuel again this was originally one book in the hebrew manuscripts and really is one of the most exciting thrilling sections anywhere in your bible Uh, this section of scripture just to review Uh, begins coming out of that messed up period of the judges and then by the time we get to the end of second samuel the nation of israel is one of the greatest nations on earth you see a massive transition in the nation of israel from sporadically loosely connected tribes to a united kingdom as the book of second samuel closes it's named for samuel who was the prophet kind of the priest during this time that god uses to really redirect the entire nation Covers a period of about 130 or so years from the birth of Samuel all the way uh, to David's last words as the book of 2 Samuel closes. So uh, just to kind of set the, the the stage a little bit for us, we've covered a couple themes that I think are going to help you in your reading and help you as you talk through this. One of the themes that you see pulled through 1st and 2 Samuel is God's covenant faithfulness. You see God fulfill his promise to build a nation and to promise a coming messiah and you see him do that through messed up people you see him do this through messed up king Saul you see him do this through even David who's a messed up dude and the reason you see Israel prosper as a nation by the end of second Samuel is even despite David at times but it's because of God's covenant faithfulness to what he promised way back to Abraham so you see that thread pulled through now, the other theme that we chased last week in particular, and we're going to chase it this week again, is this idea that you see over and over in the, this first and second Samuel section is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see a pattern throughout first and 2 Samuel, and it's this pattern that those who trust in themselves, those who try to elevate themselves, you see God oppose and humble them. But those who are selfless and humble and deeply dependent upon the Lord, unimpressive really, you see God elevate and use greatly for his glory. You see that played out with Hannah at the beginning and Penaniah. You see that played out with Samuel and he... Uh, is juxtaposed to Eli's two wicked sons. You see that play out with the powerful Philistine army and against the Israeli army. And then you see it play out with little runt David go against this incredible giant, this battle-hardened warrior Goliath. You see this played out. Uh, Jesus said it this way, "'Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. "'He who humbles himself will be exalted.'" And from all that, we we came, uh, really landed on our big truth, which is this, same as last week, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What does that look like? We're chasing it primarily in the lives of two men. King Saul, who last week we saw, is really a, a picture of what it looks like to operate as one operating from a place of pride. This week, we're gonna chase the life of David, who certainly was an imperfect person, but from a place of humility, and the Bible contrasts those two. Two different men, Two different kings, two different kingdoms, really. You see how the kingdom of man operates, this self-will, self-reliance, self-determined Saul in that kingdom. This week, we see the kingdom of David and how it operates as one of humility, one of dependence, one of trust, one of worship. And those two are contrasted from one another. Again, last week, Saul, a picture of the proud, and this week, let's chase this incredible figure, King David, through the pages of First and 2 Samuel together. Now, when we talk about King David, we know there's so much written about King David, so much history about this figure in the Bible known as King David. He was the shepherd boy who rose to Israel's greatest human king. Uh, If you visit Israel today, as a group from our church does every couple years or so, you see uh, the history of David everywhere. You still see Jerusalem called the city of David. You see the flag that flies over Israel today with the star of David. You don't hear a lot about Saul, but you hear a lot about David. Every king that followed David was compared to him. It's said throughout the book of Kings and Chronicles, Uh, That a king either walked in the ways of his father David or he did not walk in the ways of his father David. Uh, David is the author of perhaps some of the most loved sections of scripture. Everyone has read a psalm at one time or another or is familiar with the psalms. Uh, This earthly king, David, is a picture of our heavenly king the lord jesus uh, who is even called the son of david throughout the Gospels. so a massive figure in history and in our bible is this fellow king david so here's what we're going to do we're going to chase this idea what does it look like god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble david gives us a picture of what it looks like to walk in humility not perfectly but in humility, a man after God's own heart. So 1 Samuel 16, let's start there. And we see there that David is going to be anointed as the next king of Israel, but not publicly. It's very important when we come to chapter 16, Saul is still the public king. The fallen kingdom of Saul is still who and what's reigning on the earth. David is privately anointed as the future king of Israel. That promise doesn't come to reality for over 30 years in the life of David and the life of Israel. So 1 Samuel 16, 1, we'll follow along, says this. The Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him, or since I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil, go, I will send you, Samuel, to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, this is a hugely important verse. First, God says, I want you to go to a man named Jesse. Now, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, we know that Jesus is going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be a descendant of Judah. Jesse is a descendant of Judah. Jesse lives in Bethlehem. It's a foreshadowing that our great King Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem one day. And God has ordained and orchestrated all this. So he says to Samuel, Go to Bethlehem. You're going to find the king there. So Jesse brings out all of his sons. They go one by one the tall ones, the strong ones, the good looking ones. And God says, Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. And you come to verse 7, and the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Talking about some of uh, Jesse's other sons who maybe looked like a king outwardly. God gives us an incredible principle here. He says, I've rejected them, for God, the Lord, sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Huge principle here that God is going to choose his next king, not based on what we may see outwardly, but what's going on in his heart. Verse 11, then Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? Is this all of them? And he said, well, there's one more, but he's the rut. (laughs) He's the young guy and he's the youngest, but behold, he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him, for we're not gonna sit down and have this fancy meal we're having until you bring in the least, the youngest from your family. And we're gonna look at five different big ideas that flow out of the life of David. And here's the first one we see. Big idea number one is this. The humble serve faithfully wherever they are. You see an incredible principle right away in the life of David. All the brothers have rushed into the house to sit around the table, to meet the prophet, to be a part of this event. David is still out in the field doing what he was called to do, the lowly job of taking care of the sheep. This job was the least of jobs. David is missing something very important to do simply what he's been assigned to do. In his faithful work as a shepherd, faithful to where God had called him, It's an incredible principle that you see as he does this unto the Lord. God is preparing the shepherd boy to one day be king in the faithfulness of where he is serving out in the field. He has no idea all that God has prepared for him, but he knows this. This is where God has assigned me, and I'm going to be faithful to this kingdom assignment. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, if it's prominent, if it's well-known, If it's obscure on the backside of a field watching over sheep, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for men. You see a great principle in the life of David here. He does his work. He serves faithfully where he's currently assigned. And God is the one who elevates as as David faithfully serves where God's called him to serve. So the story goes on. They bring David in, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in, David. Now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and handsome. And the Lord said to him, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel takes the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. God says, this is the one I've chosen to be, the next king of Israel. Now remember, this anointing of this king is private it's not public yet it's very important as we continue so moving on chapter 17 now david is going to faithfully serve his father but then he's going to be given more and more opportunities to serve in different ways you come to chapter 17 it's the great chapter of david and goliath it's wartime israel continues their war with the nation of the Philistines. Uh, God's people, as we come to chapter 17, they're paralyzed in fear by this nine-foot Philistine giant named Goliath. Now, if you're a VeggieTales fan, you're picturing a huge giant pickle, but he's a whole lot worse than a giant pickle. He's a mean, scary dude, Goliath. And the nation of Israel is paralyzed in fear, and that's where we find them in chapter 17. David goes to the front lines to serve his older brothers, and he hears the taunt of, from Goliath and what Goliath is saying back to the nation of Israel. We'll pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 17. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That's where God's people are when David shows up on the scene. Pick it back up in verse 26. David hears what Goliath has to say and hears his response. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does this guy think he is speaking this way to God's army, God's people? Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, uh, he goes out to battle this Philistine and he goes out in courage, he goes out with the strength that the Lord provides and he says in verse 45, as David goes out to meet Goliath you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied here's this little runt boy here's this little shepherd boy who is demonstrating much more courage than any other person in Israel including his brothers So here's the second big idea we see about humility or about the humble. The humble live courageously through dependence upon God's strength. Now this is a hugely important principle for us. Humility is not fearful timidity. Biblical humility is not self-willed determinism of look at me what I'm going to do either. But humility is walking in deep dependence upon a strength that is not our own. David goes against an enemy that's bigger, mightier, stronger than he is. In his own strength, he doesn't have a chance to defeat Goliath, and that's the point. But he goes out, he says, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the humble live courageously. Listen, we're to be a bold people. We're to be a courageous people, not because of our own strength, but because of the strength provided to us by the very Spirit of God living within us. Proverbs 21 says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous, the righteous are bold as a lion. David defeats Israel's great enemy, Goliath, by the strength and the power that God provides. He's walking in humility. He's walking in deep dependence to the strength, not his own, but that God provides. And as the story goes on, we see that David rises to great prominence and then he's humbled. He rises to great prominence and then he's humbled again. We come to chapter 20. Now, David's approval ratings in Israel are skyrocketing. Everyone's heard of David. They're singing songs about David. Uh, David is brought into King Saul's house as a musician. In his faithfulness, he's elevated to the place of commander over Saul's army. Now, Saul, still operating from a place of pride is becoming a madman before our very eyes as we read through first Samuel. He's going crazy and he realizes that David is a huge threat to him and to his position. So instead of celebrating what he sees God doing in David's life, he becomes fearful and suspicious toward David, even though David is now God's anointed. So we come to first Samuel chapter 20 verse 31 and Saul makes a declaration. He says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you, speaking to his son Jonathan, or your kingdom will be established. Therefore, send and bring him here to me, for he, David, shall surely die. Saul comes to the conclusion that David must go. David must die. He's a threat to me. Curious, is there anywhere else in your Bible that the Jewish authorities consider one anointed by God as worthy of death. It's a picture of Jesus that the, uh, the Pharisees and those in authority during Jesus' day determined he must die. He's a threat to us. Same picture you see here. David is the anointed of God, but he's a threat to the one who's in authority now, Saul, to that kingdom. Saul says he must die. So from chapter 20... Really, almost through the end of 1 Samuel, David's on the run from Saul. Saul's doing everything he can to eliminate David, to kill David. Saul is maniacal, he's paranoid, and David is on the run. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, David runs even into the land of the Philistines to try to find refuge. We see in 1 Samuel 22 that David runs to Moab, the land of his great-grandmother Ruth, and tries to find refuge there. We see in 1 Samuel 23, verse 14, it's kind of a summary statement of these many, this long period in David's life of running from Saul. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel 23, And David remained in the strongholds and in the wilderness and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. And that's what it was like for David. You have to understand in this situation, David's world is turned upside down. He's kicked out of the palace. He has to run from his family. Everything David holds securely has been taken from him and he's living basically in exile. The end of verse 23, verse 14 says something very important for us. He's running from Saul. Saul is seeking him every day. And here's this little phrase, but God did not give him, David, into his hand, Saul. Saul is the one who is after David. But who's ultimately in control? God is. God's only going to let this go as far as God chooses. Even as Saul's trying to eliminate David, God is ultimately in control. Here's our, our, our third big idea I want us to see. The humble obey and endure hardship. Man, that is so clear in David's life here. Up to this point, David's obeyed. David's done what he's been asked to do by Saul. David's done what he's been asked to do by God. David's even risked his own life for this nation. And now he's an exile from this very nation. He's basically a a wanted fugitive. He's been ousted from the palace. Again, separated from his family. David's life is turned completely upside down. And everything he held on to has been taken from him. Now, as you think about this, some verses ought to be going through our head. Verses like... James chapter 1 that says this Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, God does some of his greatest work in our lives during times of distress, crisis, and trial. Here's what I want us to see from the life of David How does David respond? in the midst of this confusing, unsettling time when everything in his life is turned upside down. (laughs) Is that practical to us today? Are we living in a period of our life that it seems like everything is unsettled, everything is confusing, everything is turned upside down? We sure are. 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel has much to say to us about that. How does David respond? Well, we know how David responds because we have the book of Psalms. Many of your Psalms that you hold so dear are written from the heart of David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while he's hiding in a cave or while he's running to the Philistines or while he's under the threat of death, while he's under this time of distress and crisis. You get a lot of your Psalms that we love so much in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Psalm chapter 57. Psalm chapter 57 is written when David is hiding out in this cave complex somewhere outside of Jerusalem with his mighty men hiding from Saul. And the Bible says, as David writes in this place of distress, verse 1, it tells us that this was written as he fled from Saul. David cries out, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I love that. David says, everything around me that I would normally seek to take refuge in is gone from me. Lord, I'm left with you alone. And David finds out that God is enough. He says, in you, Lord, I take refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. There's that word again. Till the storms of destruction pass by. Incredible. Verse two, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. David, when everything is unraveling, when it seems like everything is in crisis mode, he holds on to the reality and says, God will fulfill his purpose for me, even though it doesn't look like it right now. He continues on, verse 4 of Psalm 57 My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of men, their their teeth, their spears, and arrows are coming after me. Verse 5 Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 9, I will give thanks to you. I will sing praise to you for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's from the heart of David when his life is in distress. In a time of crisis. How does David respond? He laments. He laments. We talked about that several years ago when we walked through the Psalms together as a church. You see an expression of lamenting. Lamenting can be defined this way. It's God-honoring worship and soul-shaping dialogue from a place of sorrow or crisis. Say that again. It's God-honoring worship, soul-shaping dialogue. David did not stop talking to God. David did not stop wrestling with God. He did not stop crying out to God, very honest about the situation, but he didn't stop there. He continued back to a place of worship and centeredness on who God was that didn't change. Man, the Psalms do that over and over and over for us. David, in a time of crisis, you see he obeyed and at the same time in humility, he experienced great distress that's going to happen to every child of god maybe happening in your life right now the psalms provide for us a place to lament soul shaping dialogue and honest genuine god honoring worship of our god and we continue on from there through the end of 1 Samuel god uses this situation in david's life to faithfully shape him during this long season of crisis god faithfully does that He prepares him in the cave to ultimately sit on the throne. And then Saul is going to die at the end of 1 Samuel. And by the time we come to 2 Samuel, David is now king. The first few chapters of 2 Samuel, as you read through that, it's really a time of civil war. Who's going to rule and reign in Israel? And it's a time again of unrest. And then by the time you get to chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, David is now publicly coronated as the king of Israel, chapter five, verse three, we'll pick it up there. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. So finally, David is not just privately anointed king. He's now publicly or uh, coronated as the king. God fulfilled his promise that he made many years ago. And here's what's neat to see, watch this. There's been a band of men and women that have been following David all of these years. They've been following this privately coronated king, trusting that one day he was going to be publicly coronated. And now those that trusted this king by faith are now going to reign with him in this new kingdom of Israel. And by the way, that's the story for you and me as well. We are following by faith a privately coronated King Jesus who the world sees as some dead rabbi from Israel. You and I see him by faith as the king. One day, according to the book of Revelation, he's going to be publicly coronated. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And Revelation even goes on to say, and we will reign with him in his kingdom. It's a picture of that in the life of David. Now, it goes on. I want to show you two more quick glimpses from the life of David in this new kingdom of David here. Flip on ahead to chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. I'm going to show you two more glimpses from the life of David. The first one involves covenant faithfulness that we see in the heart of David. 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 3. And the king said, this is David, is there not still someone of the house of Saul That I may show the kindness of God to him. David says, I want to demonstrate the kindness of God. That word kindness is that Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant loyalty, steadfast, unceasing love. David's going to demonstrate that. And they say, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. You remember Jonathan, we talked about him earlier. David and Jonathan had made a covenant with one another. Jonathan was heir to the the throne of Saul, but he recognized David as the anointed of God. And they formed this covenant. You read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42. And it says this covenant extended even to their descendants, the next generation. So someone comes back to David and they say, hey, there's a son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. He's crippled in both feet and David says this, bring him to me, get him here. Verse six, so Mephibosheth, who is a descendant of the fallen kingdom of Saul, an enemy to the The new kingdom of David, is brought in, in verse six, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face to pay homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant. At this point, Mephibosheth is fearful before the new king. It doesn't usually go well for the descendants of the former king. When they're brought in before the new king, they usually have a very short lifespan. But Mephibosheth is brought in and David is extending covenant grace and covenant loyalty because of the promise he made to Jonathan. He says this, verse 7, David says to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness grace covenant faithfulness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore to you all the land of your father Saul and you shall eat at my table always verse 13 so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table king David's table now he was lame in both feet What you see here in this story is an incredible demonstration and picture of covenant faithfulness. This enemy of the king is sought by the king. He's brought to the king. And the king who had every right to destroy him as an enemy, he was of another kingdom, is brought in and shown love. He's brought in and shown grace. Here's big idea number four. The humble experience and extend lavish grace. Because David had experienced the lavish grace of his God, he's able to extend this kind of lavish grace even to the enemy, Mephibosheth. And here you have this enemy, Mephibosheth, who's now adopted and brought to the very table of the king and is treated as one of the king's own sons. And by the way, that's you and me. That's what the Lord Jesus does. We are enemies of the king. We operate in our own kingdom in rebellion, but we were sought, we were brought to the king's table, we've been adopted as one of the king's sons, and we have all the privileges of sonship. Because of us? Absolutely not. Because of the covenant faithfulness of our great God. And you see that lived out in the life of David, and that is to be lived out in the life of every follower of Jesus who has experienced that kind of grace. We demonstrate that kind of grace to others. Final picture, and we'll be done. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Find your place there, and we'll wrap it up with this. Now, by no means is David or the humble without sin. David, in humility, responds to sin in his life in a way that's character that's different than those who walk in pride. Chapter 11 is a disaster. It's the sin, it's the great sin of David. It's not the only sin of David, but it's one of the, the times that the Bible chooses to tell us. It says, verse 1, in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David sends out Joab and he stays back at the, at the palace. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He's walking around on the roof of the palace and he looks down and he sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba. She was very beautiful. Verse 3, David sat and inquired about the woman big mistake he was curious they told him they said this is Bathsheba she's the daughter of a lion the wife this is a married woman to Uriah one of your commanders but David in his sin David sent messengers and took her verse 4 she came and uh, lay with him after she had purified herself from her uncleanness, verse 4 says then she returned to her house verse 5 the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said I'm pregnant great sin in the life of David and you know the rest of the story you can read it on your own she becomes pregnant David does everything he can to cover up the sin he ultimately ends up murdering Uriah on the front lines so he's guilty of adultery he's guilty of murder and guilty of a cover up David sins David covers it up and then God in his faithfulness exposes it through the prophet Nathan and you can read about that in chapter uh, 12 second Samuel chapter 12 God faithfully will not leave his children in a place of sin. He pursues them. He pursues us. How does David respond when his sin is exposed? We know again from the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 32, very quickly, I'm going to read a few verses, reveals a humble heart when our sin is exposed. Psalm 32, one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away and my groaning all day long. David tried to hide his own sin. David tried to cover up his own sin. And you see the result, verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up with the fever heat of summer. Psalm 51 is another psalm that tells us about this. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is vastly different from what we heard from Saul last week. The heart of pride makes excuses. The heart of pride blames others, confuses genuine repentance with regret. David says, Lord, against you and you only. Ultimately, I've sinned against you. And he owns it. Verse 5, Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I confess my transgressions. Verse six, therefore, let everyone who's godly offer to you in a time you may be found. The humble sin and they seek their redeemer. Verse seven, you are my hiding place. David says, I can't attempt to cover my own sin. You are my hiding place or my covering. The humble sin. But here's our final big idea. The humble Run to our Redeemer in repentance and faith. When David's sin is exposed, which it is over and over and over, first he tries to cover his sin, but then he realizes as God faithfully pursues him, no, you are my hiding place. You are the one who covers my sin. And you see that played out in the life of a humble, repentant, dependent heart, in the life of David, when he walks through a season of sin in his life. So finally, just to wrap up, here's what we see. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble serve faithfully wherever they are. The humble live courageously in total dependence upon the strength God supplies. The humble obey and endure hardship. The humble experience lavish grace and extend lavish grace. The humble sin and we run to our Redeemer in faith and repentance. Just wanna encourage you to enter into, even there in your own home or wherever you may be watching this, a time of response. And I wanna read some response questions over you to wrestle with. And just wrestle with a question like this. Are, Are you currently serving in humility with all diligence and faithfulness wherever God has assigned you? Is your life characterized by courage that Jesus provides, not your own strength. Are you suffering hardship and trials well? Are you lamenting well? Are you utilizing the book of Psalms to cry out to the Lord in genuine worship and soul-shaping dialogue? As a recipient of lavish grace, are you dispensing that kind of grace toward others? And finally, as a believer who our sins are ultimately atoned for in Christ, Are we bringing that sin continually under the cover of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we trying to cover our own sin? God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble.